I want to read today from uh, a book called The Lies That Bind, Rethinking Identity by Kwame Anthony Apaya. Uh, a little sentence from that is in your order of service today. Uh, Dr. Apaya is, his mother is British and his father Ugandan. He grew up for the most part in Uganda. Uh, now he is a philosopher teaching in the United States. So I think he has, you know, one of the more interesting looks at how identity, both personal and cultural, work. He says, the existentialists were right. Existence precedes essence. We are before we are anything in particular. But the fact that identities come without essences does not mean they come without entanglements. And the fact that they need interpreting and negotiating does not mean that each of us can do with them whatever we wish. For these labels belong to communities. They are a social possession. And morality and political prudence require us to try to make them work for us all. Over the course of my lifetime, I have watched, learned from, and participated in the reshaping of what it means to be women and men, and yes, sometimes neither, in the various interconnected places I have lived my life. Without the reshaping of gender that has increasingly liberated us all from old patriarchal assumptions, I could not have lived my life as a gay man married to another man, making a life in public and in private ways together. This life has been made possible through other people's struggle in ways both large and small and by my taking small risks with friends, employers, and family. If I had stayed in Ghana, where I grew up, I would, like other lesbian and gay Ghanaians, have a long road still to travel. But in the meanwhile, women in Ghana, who were always more autonomous than in many other parts of the world, have seen their options grow and prosper, in part by recognizing that much that was once assumed impossible for women, because they were women, because of what a woman essentially was, could be made possible and that a world of empowered women is enriching for men as well. There is a liberal fantasy in which identities are merely chosen, so we are all free to be what we choose to be. But identities without demands would be useless. Identities work only because once they get their grip on us, they command us, speaking to us in an inner voice, and because others, seeing who they think we are, call on us too. If you do not care for the shapes of your identities, you cannot simply refuse them. They are not yours alone. You have to work with others inside and outside the labeled group in order to reframe them so they fit you better, and you can do that collective work only if you recognize that the results must serve others as well. In a poem called Walls, uh, C.P. Kavafi, who was a, a, a Algerian poet, writes, without reflection, without sorrow, without shame, they have built 
around me great high walls. And I sit here now and despair. I think of nothing else. This fate consumes my mind because I had so many things to do outside those walls. That's the end of the poem. Back to Apaya. We all have many things to do out there in the world. And the problem is not walls as such, but walls that hedge us in. Walls we played no part in designing, walls without doors and windows, walls that block our vision and obstruct our way, walls that will not let in fresh and enlivening air. A brilliant philosopher, and I'll talk about him a little more. Today I do want to consider that sentence in your order of service where Apaya says, our largest cultural identities can free us only if we recognize that we have to make their meanings together and for ourselves. I think that this Indigenous Peoples Weekend is a good time to question our assumptions and think about the individual and the collective meanings that we create, or often don't. What I want to think through is the oddity that the European and Euro-American psyche is at once highly individualistic but extremely spotty concerning how to have a rich and resilient inner life, interiority, as it's often called. The idea of an autonomous self, an individual, came out of medieval European Catholicism but did not really come into its own until the Protestant Reformation, when some Christians began to insist that they could read the Bible and find God without the help of priests and preachers, all in their own heads, in other words. The traditional experts were out with the Protestant Reformation, and the amateurs were in, if you will. Everyone was suddenly free to develop their own worldview and experiment on their own psyches, but they weren't prepared to do that because for 1,500 years, the church had taught Europeans that morality was wrapped up in a neat little package that only they were able to explain. It's as if large numbers of people suddenly decided, hey, I've got access to the internet, I've got YouTube, I can do brain surgery. <laughs> well, okay, doing your own theology is not quite as difficult as your own brain surgery, but you get the idea. I think that part of the problem is that in Western Europe and nations Europeanized by invasion, such as the United States, we have both an overdeveloped sense of individuality and an underdeveloped sense of an inner life. That causes trouble. This development went a long way toward convincing Europeans, mostly European men, that they had a hotline to the truth. But it didn't do much in the way of helping those same people develop a complex, wise, and shall we say, humble inner life. And it didn't go far at all in terms of developing a cohesive and communal society. To repeat that quote from Dr. Apaya, our largest cultural identities can free us only if we recognize that we have to make their meanings together 
and for ourselves, individual and communal. What does it mean to be human? Good question. What does it mean to be in a society? Good question. Europeans didn't dwell on those questions as they invaded the planet. The name Gianni Vatimo is not well known here in the United States, but Dr. Vatimo is one of the better known philosophers in Europe, and he served two terms on the European Parliament, the governing body of the European Union. Gianni Vatimo is many things. He's a postmodern philosopher, a politician, a Christian, a communist, openly gay, loudly atheist, and he's an advisor to Pope Francis. Now the question is why? Marissa, thanks so much for adding a little background to, the, to, to this. This was totally unexpected, but that's the way, yeah, that's the way these things work sometimes. Vatimo's philosophy has focused on what he calls pensiero debole. Pensiero is where we get the English word pensive, right? Debole didn't come into English, but those of you who know Spanish know debiles, weak. So pensiero debole means weak thought. Uh, now, what's up with that? Because we all want strong thought, right? Well, not so fast, says Gianni Vatimo. Weak thought emphasizes that we human beings are not integrated, unitary reason machines. Strong thought asserts that reason is disinterested, solitary, and objective, which leads to what is often called scientism, and colonialism, and sexism, and those sorts of bad behaviors. Weak thought claims that no answer, or at least not many, is an answer for all time. Everything we think and do as human beings is contingent and time-bound. It depends. There is, in other words, no big T truth. Hmm. So, wouldn't the Pope be the last person in the world who would want to hear that? And why does the Pope have Vatimo on his cell phone? For one thing, it appears that Pope Francis would actually like to get the Roman Catholic Church out of the business of gay bashing and abortion opposition and into the work of alleviating poverty and maybe even saving our fragile planet. Pope Francis gets a lot of pushback from church conservatives who say, but God says we must do this and that. We must stand for big T truth for all time. And this is the attitude, of course, that is de rigueur in this country if you want to be a conservative Supreme Court nominee. You got to be Roman Catholic of that sort. But Pope Francis has realized the power of Gianni Vatimo's pensiero de bole, weak thought. Now, frankly, if I got to do the translation, I think I would call it perhaps soft thought, but it's telling, isn't it, that any English words that you want to translate tender, weak, soft, etc., all have negative connotations. Hmm, what's up with that, white men? Anyway, Pope Francis knows that what was true in 1318 
is not true in 2018. Now, many Unitarians began to see this back in about the mid-19th century, and it's taking Roman Catholicism a little bit longer to get there. But Dr. Vadimo and Pope Francis have joined we freethinkers in understanding that one generation's truth is another generation's belly laugh or another generation's social coercion. You must do that because. Our socially conservative friends don't get that. Never have, and perhaps never will. After all, the human quest has long been to find a solid foundation for meaning and truth. Weak thought or soft thought throws in the towel. Why would we want to throw in the towel? Don't we all secretly want to join in the conservative chorus you've seen on the bumper stickers? God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Or science said it, I believe it, that settles it. Don't we all want to be solidly right? You may have noticed it's in your order of service and posters around the building saying that the secular scholar Phil Zuckerman is going to be here on Sunday, October the 21st. Some of you heard him speak back uh, at our Dietrich 100 celebration. He's a great speaker and uh, people loved him. Zuckerman calls the dependence on God and scriptures for your truth, he calls that moral outsourcing. Moral outsourcing. Now, maybe that's a little bit overstated and harsh, but you do get the point. Johnny Vadimo, Pope Francis, and all of you do not say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. We are taking personal responsibility in saying, I said it, I might be wrong. When you stop outsourcing your moral decisions, you gotta develop a complex inner life. You must become a practical philosopher, a term that goes all the way back to the pre-Christian Stoics. They wanted to differentiate between the kind of philosophy that talked about the meaning of meaning and how many angels dance on the head of a pen and get down to figuring out how do we get through this mess of our lives and live well and morally. The point of practical philosophy is valuing what is valuable, not valuing what's not valuable, and trying to figure out the difference between those two. Practical philosophy, or practical theology, if you will, grapples with Kwame Anthony Apaya's challenge. That's in your order of service. Our largest cultural identities can free us only if we recognize that we have to make their meanings together and for ourselves. Now, reflect that Taoism, Hinduism, Buddhism have gotten popular in Western culture exactly because those traditions talk about an inner life and inner resilience in the ways that Western Christianity never did. 
that's the Pope's problem with where Roman Catholicism is. In the European tradition, we have to go back to pre-Christian thinking to find much about how to have an inner life. Now, those of you who've heard me a few times know that my favorite practical philosopher is uh, the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius. He wrote a book called Meditations, which actually he did not intend to publish. It was only his own personal philosophical journey trying to figure out how to get up in the morning and get through the day. One of his most famous meditations goes like this. Here's a guy with an inner life. He says, when you wake up in the morning, tell yourself, the people I deal with today will be meddling, ungrateful, arrogant, dishonest, jealous, and surly. They are like this because they can't tell good from bad. But I have seen the beauty of the good and the ugliness of the bad and have recognized that the wrongdoer has a nature related to my own. And so none of them can hurt me. No one can implicate me in their ugliness. Nor can I feel angry at my fellow human beings, nor hate them. We were born to work together, like feet, hands, and eyes, like the two rows of teeth. To obstruct each other is unnatural." End quote. Now, our theme for this month is sanctuary. And the first step in acting in a self-aware, moral way is developing those kinds of inner resources to stay balanced. Only then can you have an outward resilience to get on in the world. Marcus Aurelius also wrote this, quote, remember that your reason is invincible when you are in control. That is doing nothing you choose not to do. The mind free from uncontrolled emotion is a citadel. It is an impregnable sanctuary, and we have no more secure place to run to. Those who have not realized this are ignorant, and those who have realized it but do not use their insight will be unhappy." End quote. Which is a whole long way from saying, a mighty fortress is our God. No, a mighty fortress is our minds. In this philosophy, Johnny Vatimo is wrestling with a problem that 20th century German philosopher Martin Heidegger first brought up. Heidegger pointed out that it appears we have, or no, we think we have, two ways of thinking, two modes. And of course, that was a long time before Daniel Kahneman came up with the thinking fast and slow idea. But in one way, Kahneman is perpetrating an old Western myth that we have two very distinct ways of thinking. Kahneman says it's kind of an either or, but actually, Vadimo and Heidegger would say, it's both and. Heidegger claimed that we have simply never established a connection between being and truth. That's where existentialism comes from. We have never established a connection between being and truth. That's why I started the reading where I did from Apaya. We know that much of our energy each day is spent merely getting through another day, putting out fires, paying bills, reacting to the latest dumb thing the government's doing. All of that is practical, but we think 
we are able to stop being practical and shift into a mode that is theoretical. Heidegger called this move the disappearance of praxis. In the place of praxis doing things, we want to be in this theoretical place that is translated out of German as just looking around. Just, you know, totally objective, just looking around. I don't know what that is in German. We'll have to figure that out. This is the source of Gianni Vadimo's argument for weak thought. As Heidegger observed, actually, we are never wholly putting out fires or wholly just looking around. We are just looking around while we put out the fires of everyday existence, and we're putting out fires when we think we're just looking around. It is, in other words, completely impossible to separate the objective from the subjective. We're thinking about the meaning of life as we put out those fires and paying those bills, and we're paying the bills and putting out fires when we think we're thinking about the meaning of life. As the computer programmers say, that is not a bug in the system. It is a feature of the human brain. When we admit this to ourselves, we see that the claims of religion and the claims of science are standing on clay feet. It is equally foolish to claim that a religion has the whole truth and that science holds the key to truth. Our minds just don't work that way. From the very foundation of the Western world, the claim has been that something, religion, philosophy, science, something will wrap truth up in a beautiful little permanent package and put it on a shelf. Realizing that that isn't the case, I say, is the beginning of wisdom. This is the central claim in the philosophy of brilliant contemporary philosophers like the feminist Judith Butler or the ethicist Martha Nussbaum, Gianni Vadimo, and maybe a little bit the Pope. Why did Europeans feel justified in invading the Western Hemisphere and killing and displacing and enslaving its peoples. Largely because Europeans invented the concept of religion and they said, this is religion, we've defined it and you ain't got one, so we can kill you. One of the central justifications for racialized slavery was that Europeans were saving Africans from Satan by hauling them to the Western Hemisphere in chains and forcing Christianity upon them. That was strong thought, and it's very destructive. Western science was merely the other side of this coin we must reflect. Scientists proved that different races have different abilities in terms of both intelligence and culture. Wasn't true. Scientists proved that women's brains just weren't up to that difficult task of thinking like a white man wasn't true, all convenient and deadly lies. The European project went from spreading Christianity to spreading democracy to spreading the free market, but the world's peoples never asked for any of those things. Cultural imperialism, a lack of an inner life, I think. Gianni Vadimo's weak thought is a way to finally exit delusional, murderous power games and walk humbly with our ideas. Weak thought undercuts the claims of truth and power 
and invites us to stop proclaiming and start listening. Weak thought invites us to the realization that none of us is packaging the truth for all time. Rather, we are planning and working just to make it through another day. We, the human race, just can't afford the luxury of baseless and ill-considered convictions in a world that is growing overcrowded and ever warmer. Let's finish with Dr. Apaya one more time. Our largest cultural identities can free us only if we recognize that we have to make their meanings together and for ourselves.